The land of a rich man produces abundantly and he thinks to himself, what should I do? For I've nowhere to store my crops. And Jesus tells these stories we've heard in response to someone coming to him and wanting a family dispute sorted out. And it's a story dripping with irony. And I imagine as Jesus tells this story, there are quite a few pauses and looks and waiting. In the story that Jesus tells, why is the man rich? Big landholder. And who's doing the work? Slaves. Slaves and the very very land. Jesus kind of, it's really interesting. The land produced abundantly, it tells us. So this man is drawing from the resources of the earth, not him working hard. The land produces abundantly. And it begins with the man sounding quite open in the parable. What should I do? But then the narrowness of the question becomes clear. I have no place to store my crops. This man has no thought for anyone other than himself. He doesn't remember Jewish law which calls for radical generosity. He's only concerned with self-preservation and accumulation, superannuation really. And in this story Jesus tells Jesus encapsulates the greed and the narrow mindset of so many people of the whole capitalist enterprise that we find ourselves even in. The notion that there should be concern for others is quite at odds with our culture's messages. It's not part of the equation. And then Jesus goes on to tell the rest of the story that the man builds his big sheds, his uh, equivalent offshore tax havens, his protection from the future without care for others, and then unexpectedly, He's about to die. This whole man's worldview is utterly self-absorbed. It's got him nowhere. He's missed the point of living and he only finds out in his dying. And just in case we need it any more clearly put, a few verses on in Luke's Gospel and it's in the reading next week, Jesus calls disciples to sell their possessions and give alms. Jesus is very clear in Luke's Gospel about the problem of wealth and the call to radical generosity. Especially towards the poor, especially towards those without resources or support. As I'm sure most of you know, this week in the Australian media, the topic of wealth and poverty has been a significant focus. So interesting that this is our reading set down in the lectionary from around the world. And it's become because in part our Prime Minister has declared that he rejects an increase to New Start to pay and make people who cannot find work because it would be, quote, unfunded empathy. For those struggling to survive on New Start, trying to ensure that they can pay for their housing and their bills and enough internet to apply for jobs and some clothes if you actually get an interview. And you can never just go out for a coffee because there's not enough money for that. 
Having enough money to live on and remain sane is not a question of empathy, but of fair justice. And at the same time as our Prime Minister is declaring that an increase to New Start would be unfunded empathy, his government has given extraordinary, extraordinary tax breaks for the most wealthy. And all the while, he very openly claims Christian faith, that he is a disciple of Jesus. How can there be such a disjuncture, such a gap between the way Jesus calls us to in the Gospels and the understandings that some people claim as they follow Jesus around wealth and poverty? How can this be? And it's not just the Prime Minister. This is part of a far bigger trend. I wanted to dive into this. Because there are multiple reasons that coalesce, that come together to inform this worldview. And a significant factor in that is what I call folk Christianity. It's alive and it's well, and I would argue it's probably the biggest religion in Australian culture. What do I mean? Well, the core tenets are things like cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who? Help themselves. Every cloud has a? There we go, thank you. And this whole worldview is laced with the assumption if you're a good person, I'm a good person. If you're a good person, what's going to happen? Good things. It's uh, another word I've invented it's sanctification. It's an image of God as Santa. You better be good. Be good, get good stuff. Be bad, watch out. Uh, by the way, that's why so many people reject any notion of God when bad things do happen because that's the, the kind of karma-infused folk Christianity going on. And when you have this worldview, then if you happen to be poor, well, then you haven't helped yourself. Can you see the logic? Just work harder. You haven't worked hard enough. No, no. Because it's all enmeshed. If you're dirty, as in, you know, you might be struggling to find somewhere where you can have a shower, if you're experiencing homelessness, well, then you're not next to God. Like, that's, that's, the, that's the both ways that this works. But friends, these views are not expressed by Jesus, and I want us to step them out, because this view is so prevalent, we need to pause and step it out so we don't get sucked in by it. So first... Cleanliness is next to godliness. So it's not in the Gospels. But more than that, there's even more than that. In the Gospels, one of the very first things that Jesus gets in trouble for from the religious authorities is because he is breaking what they assume are the most important laws around cleanliness. So his disciples are not washing their hands in the ritual way before eating. He's not clean. He keeps touching people who have been kicked out of their town because they have skin diseases and they're too dangerous to live in. He not just goes and sees them, he touches them and heals them. 
He stops and talks to the woman who has constant bleeding, has been outcast from her community, as entirely unclean, and heals her, calls her daughter. So Jesus, at the very first instant, breaks this long-standing assumption that cleanliness is next to godliness. He entirely disrupts that. That is not the God of Jesus Christ. So we can just put that one down. The assumption that God helps those who help themselves. Oh, my word. So the Gospels again and again record Jesus stubbornly going out to help those who no one else will help and who can't help themselves. The child who sought to have a demon. The person who no one else will talk to any longer. Like the woman who's had so many divorces. People who are in no way able to help themselves because of the society's structures or because of their own illness or condition. Jesus goes out of his way to help these people. People who the rest of the community think are undeserving. That's what, you know, they call them sinners. Our language would be undeserving. Dull bludger. This is who Jesus goes out to heal and befriend and engage with. This is the God of Jesus Christ. Every cloud has a silver lining. Oh, my word. So one of my favourite examples, because what do people say when they say that to you? Every cloud has a So you're going through an awful thing. What are they? Thank you. They're saying get over it. Yeah. Don't burden me. You'll be fine. Think positively. One of my very favourite accounts of Jesus that disrupts this so, so dramatically is in John's Gospel. So Mary and Martha, who we were journeying with a few weeks ago, in John's Gospel, Lazarus is their brother and his friend, and Mary and Martha are just so distraught. Like, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. I can't believe you're away. And what does Jesus do? Before anything else, Shortest verse in the New Testament. He doesn't say to Mary, don't worry, I'm about to raise him. It's all fine. He enters into the grief and he stops and he cries. Our belief in the resurrection in Christ's risen life does not mitigate the suffering. It's not about us trying to be cheerful and see the good in it. It's about letting God who weeps with us into the pit and then letting God do the work of resurrection. Finally, that notion that good things happen to good people. Have you noticed what happens to Jesus, the most good of all? Betrayed by almost all of his friends. Not all, the women stick by. Betrayed, lied about, false trial, executed by the government. Good things do not happen to good people. Like it's a furphy that has nothing to do with the God of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember this because folk Christianity is pervasive. It's everywhere. And the irony is that people 
think they are Christians. And I'm not trying to judge people. I just want us to step this out. But they think that they are because they celebrate Easter, get together with the family and buy chocolate. They celebrate Christmas, get together with the family and friends, have some food. They, um, they, they know something is a stable. They've seen Renaissance art. There's Madonna and Child. Like there's enough within our culture for people to vaguely identify Christianity. At the same time, I would suggest that people know the least actually about the Gospels. So let's say that again. Like, so the notions, like the key kind of images across the Madonna and Child, those are well-known. People might, might know the first line or two of the Lord's Prayer celebrate Christmas and Easter in, um, with their family. So there's a sense of knowing something, but it's a time in which people know least, have least access to the Gospels. So that's why folk Christianity can just be rife. And that's why this kind of bizarre theology about wealth can be perpetuated. Now, it's a genuine wondering for me about Scott Morrison, and I continue to pray for him, about whether he knows that he is misrepresenting the God of Jesus Christ. If he knows that the call of Jesus in the Gospels is to give away wealth, to share radically. I still don't know if he knows this, and is ignoring it, or whether he is so immersed in folk Christianity and its very strong allied prosperity theology, God wants you to be rich, you know that kind of theology, the rich of us, that he doesn't know. I'm not sure. But we, if we dare to follow Jesus, if we dare to engage with the God of Jesus Christ who is in the Gospels, we don't get the luxury. We don't get the luxury of prosperity theology thinking if we're rich, God's blessing us, and if we're good, good things will happen. And because we're clean, if we are clean, then we're close to God. We don't get any of that. We get called into the messy, vulnerable way of Jesus who calls us to reach out in love and generosity to all people regardless and to learn, and I think it's a process, to learn to stop judging people, thinking in our heads that they're worthy poor or unworthy poor, or are they worthy rich or unworthy rich. You know, we can judge it all kinds of ways. We instead get called into radical generosity. And into advocating for fair policies and in continuing to pray for those who we might feel are enemies right now. People who are claiming the name of Jesus but are misusing that name. But we're empowered by spirit along the way. We're not asked to do it on our own. We're invited to go with this amazing God of generosity into a richer, more authentic life, which is not about stuff.